Okay. Welcome to another episode of the China AI Podcast. Our guest this episode is Valentin Weber. He's a DPhil candidate in cybersecurity at the Center for Doctoral Training in Cybersecurity. He's previously worked for the International Security Department at Chatham House, and also as a fellow with the Open Technology Fund. And there, through that six-month fellowship, he produced this report. It's also put out as a working paper with the Center of Technology and Global Affairs at Oxford,、uh, where Valentin is also affiliated. Valentin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Great. So let's dive in on this report: the World Wide Web of Chinese and Russian Information Controls. We'll start with our briefing checklist, hit the high-level points, and you mark out six of them. So let's just go one by one. The first is this very interesting information control typology. One baseline you cite is actions conducted in and through cyberspace that seek to deny, disrupt, manipulate, and shape information and communications for strategic and political ends. And then you outline four distinct mechanisms: surveillance, self-censorship, censorship, and strategic information dissemination. How did you come up with this typology for information controls?、Um, my work is based on、um, previous work in that field, and、uh, I've pr- particularly looked at、um, Ron, Debert, Ron Debert's work,、um, who is、um, the director of the Citizen Lab in Toronto,、mm. um, and it reflects also other.、Um, Uh, work such as Margaret Roberts'、um, recent book about、um, inf- information controls、Great. within China. Great. So, drawing both on the theoretical work of the Citizen Lab, and then also specifically what it looks like in the Chinese context. And you mentioned that this typology also allows someone to analyze how strongly a country relies on each mechanism, as well as what. The various options they have to implement them. So, under this information control model,、uh, as you apply it to Russia and China, can you give us a sum- summary on the second point of what is the typology applied to Russian and Chinese approaches to information controls? What does that look like? So, Russia, for instance, is、um, doesn't have as many as many options to do either surveillance or induce self censorship and so on because it doesn't have. As many、um, as many companies who produce different products to um, um, exert um, su- surveillance、right. and and filtering, whereas China has many more uh, options um, to do so, and um, it uses um, more、uh, stringent censorship than Russia does, for instance, on the censorship front. Then,、um, whereas it relies less on、um, self censorship than Russia does, and Russia does. <clears throat> Um, rely a lot on, on intimidation and、um, uh, intimidation of journalists, of citizens,、mm. and so on. Especially because it doesn't have as many sophisticated tools to conduct filtering or、um, surveillance. And the intimidation of journalists would that fall under self censorship or censorship in your model? <laughs> That's a good point. I would I, I put it in the self censorship right、um, category right because you、um, show by an action you might not you just intimidate someone right and then they self censor. It's not、right. directly censoring and erasing the material exactly exactly because the the agency somewhat relies with the with the person which is being、um, intimidated. And the last one is also interesting: strategic information dissemination. Propaganda fits under there. Yeah, propaganda fits in there, but also disinformation. Okay. So、um, I would give the example of um, um, government um, microblogs within China,、mm. which are a、um, 
a um, amplifying um, channel for um, Chinese state propaganda. And then disinformation, um, we uh, know that um, Russia, for instance, has fabricated a lot, a lot of disinformation, not only internationally, but also domestically. Interesting, yeah. And for that category, you position Russia as high usage with medium options and China as also high usage, but with abundant options. And you cite the work of, I think it's King Pan and Roberts' uh, piece about the 50 cent party and how there are people paid to basically mm -hmm. spread pro-CCP messages on a wide range of issues. Exactly, and the idea there is to drown any other information that might be critical or that might not be in the government's um, favor, let's say, and to drown it by uh, overwhelming the, uh, the conversation with uh, pro-regime messages. Great. So those are the first two points, just outlining the typology and looking at how it applies descriptively. The third point is about measuring diffusion. And you are looking at three indicators of diffusion, technology, imitation, which you define as replication of information controls laws. So, for example, Tanzania and Zimbabwe government officials announcing that they intend to mimic China's replacement of foreign online content providers with homegrown ones to exert greater control. And then thirdly, training. So this includes journalist trainings where journalists from different countries will go to China and get tours or visits with officials who are showing them how to potentially cover China. So I want to dig deeper on this technology indicator. I find this very, very interesting. Uh, you do a lot of work on this. This paper is 300 plus footnotes, a lot of deep research, and you look at not only surveillance exports through company statements and media articles, which is something that a lot of people are doing, but very interestingly, you also identify a chosen set of surveillance middle boxes via network measurements in cooperation with Vasilis Ververis Nguyenfeng Hang and Marios Isakidis. OONI Explorer and Census were used to find Huawei middle boxes that have the fingerprint V2R2C00IAE forward slash 1.0. So, can you explain what you did here in layperson's terms? Exactly. <laughs> uh, with pleasure. So it seems all uh, quite complicated, but uh, when you look at it um, through uh, different perspectives, it becomes much more easier. Um, so first of all, what is a middle box? A middle box is usually a either a um, physical box, like it can be a hardware. It can, but it can also be a software that is being deployed uh, deployed at various points of the internet infrastructure. Okay. Imagine at in Oxford we have we might have an internet choke point, or yeah. in other parts of the UK as well, right. and all across the world. Right. And at these um, various points, there are these uh, middle boxes deployed, which um, are able to monitor the traffic that flows through them. And um, once they have um, monitored that traffic, they can either throttle it, they can drop the traffic, or they can redirect the traffic. And um, a common technique that is used is deep packet inspection. Mm. And that would allow you to not only see um, the metadata of, right. let's say, a message of right. who sends it to who, but also the content of the data. And um, mm. all of this can use be, be used for commercial purposes. Right. It can be used to block virus and spam because you actually know that some right. data traffic is spam. Right. But you can also use it for um, either surveilling people, individuals, yep. or you can also use it to censor content. So the middle box is what makes it 
when I'm on the network rail and I'm trying to stream like football games and they stop me from th taking all of that data and they can redirect it and limit exactly. it. Exactly. Okay. It might be that you've watched already too much football and that's why oh, they yeah. want to throttle your data usage because you've gone already, um, uh, you've used too much of it. Great. So what did you and your colleagues do with this identification number of the Huawei middle box? Exactly. Uh, so uh, what we managed to do, we got uh, a hold of a fingerprint of a Huawei middle box of a specific product, the V2R2COO, as you uh, mentioned earlier. Very creatively named. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then the, the next product is uh, the not the 1.0, but the 1.1, right? So there's different um, product types. And... Um, once we had that fingerprint, we looked at the Uni database, which um, records websites that have been blocked around the world. Wow, nice. And during every blocking inst instance, they also provide information which equipment has blocked that uh, web page. And what we were able to do is that we had that fingerprint and we looked where in the world has this box or this fingerprint right. been used to block content? And we found it in a couple of countries. Uh, for instance, in Italy, the Huawei middle box was used to censor gambling websites, right. in Pakistan, gaming websites, and so on. So we were able to find through that um, database, and by combining it with that fingerprint, um, we were, um, found those middle boxes. And to be clear, it could be... Probably in most of these instances, it's the Huawei middle box performing according to the laws of that country. Exactly. So okay. Huawei and other um, providers of their gear always say that they comply with the law in the country. Right. However, the law can be very um, malleable, repressive, okay, and or, it repressive, can, yeah. or it can be uh, used to filter different content. Right. Great. Yeah. Great. Okay, so we have that range of three indicators of diffusion that you're measuring. Now, in the fourth point, you make an argument about the causes of diffusion. Um, where are Russian and Chinese information controls in the realm of technology, imitation of laws, and also training? Where are those being diffused, and why is it being diffused to those countries? So can you give a little bit of an overview of the countries you looked at and the key variables that you isolated as the causes of diffusion? I looked at the global um, level. So I looked at every country, even small island nations, at major countries uh, such as Brazil, Argentina with large populations. So mm. the, the cases uh, were um, covering all most continents. Um, and what I identified as the causes of diffusion are two independent variables, and that will be the regime type and the extent of interconnectedness. Let me go um, a bit more into detail on either of them, on both. The extent of interconnectedness means how strongly a country is connect interconnected with um, China or Russia in terms of, um, um, of uh, economic, very economic relationships, political relationships, right. diplomatic and, and social, and so, on, and so on. And I took the Belt and Road Initiative, the trade routes, as a proxy for that interconnectedness. Right. So I said, all right, uh, countries of the BRI are going to be more interconnected than other countries. Right. And so um, for Russia, that will be the Commonwealth of Independent States, okay. which is a group of uh, former Soviet states which were traditionally in the sphere of influence of Russia. Okay. 
So that would be um, our my my hypothesis was wherever uh, those inter that strong interconnectedness existed, there would be also an easier diffusion of technology. Um, countries would be more likely to imitate, and they right. would also more be more likely to engage in training. Right. And then there was also the regime type um, variable, and here uh, my argument is that. Uh, authoritarian and hybrid countries are more likely to imitate Russia and China. So 95% of all countries that have mimicked either a Russian or Chinese law or their right. techniques right. have been um, authoritarian or hybrid. Mm. So there's a strong um, uh, causation between um, the two, or in interdependence between um, the causing and the um, uh, dependent um, variables. Great. And then the Last two points, number five and six of this briefing checklist. Number five is analyzing international diffusion of Chinese and Russian technology. And you already hinted at this, that Russia has a technosphere, that's what you call it, in the CIS, former Soviet republics. And then China also has a technosphere along the Belt and Road countries. And interestingly, there's also overlapping technospheres in 20 countries. Do you want to give a little bit of flavor as to this phenomenon? Mm -hmm. So the overlap like technospheres are um, concentrated in um, Central Asia, where both countries have exported technology. And uh, the interesting part, however, is that uh, China has a presence in all in all of the Russian um, core technosphere where mm. we're in the CIS, whereas Russia doesn't have a footprint within um China's core technosphere, which is right. the, the Belt and Road Initiative. So there seems to be an imbalance yes. of um, diffusion. And you define technosphere as all three of these elements, technology, imitation, and training, have diffused exactly. to the country. For China. Uh, for Russia, I only found um, technology, and tra uh, technology and imitation occurring. Okay. I haven't found any occurrence of uh, information controls training right. by Russian entities abroad. Okay, that, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, finally, sixth point. So you hint at some of the advantages that China and Russia gain from exporting their information controls along three areas. First is political, reinforces autocratic regimes. Second is economic, builds up new markets for exporting nations. And third is intelligence-related. And you give the example of the African Union headquarters. Can you shed a little bit light on what happened in that intelligence-related sphere? In that intelligence-related sphere, um, as you just um, mentioned, there was the African Union um, headquarters, and um, it has been revealed uh, by Le Monde that um, China did uh, build the African Union headquarters. I think it was a 200 million um dollar project wow. and in that process also telecommunications infrastructure was right. um, installed Wi-Fi wi points uh, data like all the data yeah. that's being managed and um, it was um, Huawei did supply that um, that equipment as was um, yeah. revealed by ASPI which is a Australian Institute on um, uh, an Australian think tank yeah and um, so the Le Monde report showed that for five years, data was flowing from Addis Ababa to Shanghai mm. from 2 to 5 in the morning. Hmm. And um, here you can see that uh, a Chinese entity provided um, infrastructure, which um, 
was um, then used to um, gain intelligence. And with many other projects such as safe cities and so on, that's also critical infrastructure. Right. Right. And there, there's also intelligence value for the exporting country. Great. That's great. So that's quick little, little summary. Let's get into the debate the guest section where I've come... I've compiled three main rebuttals. So I think the report, again, the report is great. We're just trying to get deeper and sometimes digging into these arguments helps actually get out the main points of the report in a better way. So I think my rebuttal number one is just the concepts are fuzzy to me. Um, I think let's, let's dig into this technology indicator. So under your explanation that if any filtering or surveillance technology is bought by a country, that means that information control technology has diffused to that country. So in that sense, the United States is a country where Chinese and Russian technology has diffused. So for the case of China, in your big table of cases of diffusion, you outlined that Huawei's eLTE applications um, have diffused to the U.S. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. Yeah, and so what is eLTE? And to some extent, I think most people would feel that that's kind of a weird thing to say, that the U.S. has adopted or Chinese information controls have diffused to the U.S. through this system. Yeah, so um, first of all, ELT is a product um, provided by Huawei, and it's usually part of uh, safe cities that can involve everything from either providing cameras or command and control systems uh, to the police. And through that um, product, um, um, the police is able to combine um, public and private uh, video surveillance networks, um, as well as uh, vehicle-mounted cameras, and um, in that way, um, the argument is that um, the police can um, uh, monitor crime, um, crime and um, also possibly reduce um, the instances of crime. And um, in the end, there should be less blind spots in the surveillance system. However, um, the real um, question is how is that um, equipment used? They can use it to, um, uh, to um, crack down on crime, but you can also use it to prevent uh, protests from happening from people um, from gathering because it gets a better insight into what's happening on the streets. Um, and here, um, the that's for, for China, right? The ELTE. Yeah. And then there was the other part about Russia. Yes, you also say that Russian information <clears throat> controls have diffused to the U.S. And you mention specifically the SpeechPro company known for audio forensics equipment, and they have collaborated with a number of U.S. agencies on it. So are you making the case that this is also an instance of technology diffusion, of diffusion of Russian information controls? Precisely. The um, digital forensics, um, the product that um, SpeechPro provided, allows for, um, let's, ma let's imagine that um, uh, law enforcement is intercepting a lot of voice, voice calls, and SpeechPro provides the software which allows for a quick analysis of who's speaking and um, other, other components of um, audio um, recordings. Now, we have two instances of um, Chinese and Russian information controls, and I would say that, especially for the latter one, where SpeechPro provided its products, I would say that's um, precisely a 
Russian information control because the SpeechPro, um, the company emerged um, from during the Soviet era still, and there mm. were um, a lot of these um, 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 the surrounding in which that product um, emerged is in the uh, in in Soviet era gulag systems where um, scientists and engineers were held in prison right. and forced to do science. And um, in that environment, a specific culture of surveillance has emerged hmm. and has then um, diffused internationally. So you are being very careful to say that these it, this isn't just a case of one police department in the U.S. or one person in the U.S. buying some product loosely linked with Huawei or Hikvision. You're being very careful to map it onto a unique Chinese and Russian information control technique that's adopted on some level on a widespread scale? Exactly, and also to monitor a larger amount of people. So the technology that is diffusing needs to be used by public authorities and have an impact on um, man- uh, managing and controlling um, l- large amounts of, of people, so it, ha- it must have an impact. Yeah, I think this is a semantic point. It's it's a good clarification, and it shows that it's a lot of careful research. But I think the semantic point here is in the innovation studies literature, or the technology studies literature. The term diffusion is a term of art that usually is distinct from invention or innovation. It refers to the wide scale, widespread adoption of a technology. So I would quibble with the degree to which, say, Huawei's ELTE has been adopted on a large-scale basis or the Speech Pro adopted on a large-scale basis. Maybe it has within police departments or within uh, security agencies, but I think the precision of the term is important. I think that connects to the next question, which is, let's say a country imports monitoring tech from the UK five years ago and then decides to also just import the same exact tech, but China is also producing that. So you would count that as an instance of Chinese information controls diffusing? Um, I don't have such a case in, in the report, right. but I would, um, because, because I didn't um, monitor or I didn't um, trace UK technology, but I think what I would emphasize here is that it's um, technology either made in the UK or technology made in China. Right. And usually, um, um, if it's exact the same technology, right. right, one would have to look into it and maybe say, okay, just make the point that the technology right. is the same but um, produced um, in different countries. Yeah, maybe I'm making too like academic of a hypothetical point here, whereas you're actually just looking at what's happening in the real world and basing your typology uh, based off of that. Um, cool. I want to get into... to what information control as a concept means. So does this typology of information control where strategic information dissemination is used um, as one of the key components? And you actually reference this in the report where uh, Trump's use of Twitter, where he blatantly lies and spreads misinformation, does that count as strategic information dissemination? And if Jane Meyer's piece in The New Yorker about how Fox News has essentially become a propaganda outlet, and Fox News is in about 60-plus countries around the world, based off of my conservative count, does that mean, under your typology, that U.S. strategic information dissemination 
um, practices of information control have now diffused to all these countries. So <clears throat> let's start off with um, the information controls, the U.S. information controls, let's yeah. say the model or approach to uh, information controls, which relies strongly on strategic information dissemination, on um, steering the discourse, and less so on actually inducing self-censorship within right. the population right. and on censoring content. Right. Um, so that's uh, the U.S. approach. And within that falls also uh, Trump's use of Twitter and also um, Fox News's um, reporting. Um, according to a report um, by researchers from Harvard's Berkman Klein Center, um, Fox News does deflect negative coverage of President Trump and it has promoted a series of exaggerated and even fabricated um, counter-narratives to kind of defend the president intentionally. So that's not independent journalism, it's, right. like we could say, best propaganda. So at home, there is that aspect in the U.S. information controls right. <clears throat> model. If you look abroad, though, I think we would have to... It's really difficult to measure the impact of such dissemination, right? Yeah. What um, impact does a... Um, uh, Fox News in 60 countries has um, on those 60 countries. What does uh, one um, or what do Trump tweets uh, Trump tweets have on a uh, the population abroad? And only to also here put it into context. There's many other um, uh, state media, let's say uh, in Tur from Turkey, that have outlets around the world. Or you right. have RT. You have right. uh, C um, you have the Chinese uh, CGTN. Right. And it's all like it's almost a cacophony of. Um, Voices and really difficult to measure. I think what one outlet um, has um, of an impact, and um, I think um, one would have to argue and in for including that into the database. Right. But what I looked at is at um, journalists um, from across the world being trained in China. Right. Um, and I think the point I want to make here is that um, this was really an extended period of time. They spent, um, lots of them spent 10 months there. They had right. a cultural trip. They went to People's Daily, to different media um, companies. To um, There really, I think, that had an impact on how they um, perceive um, information um, that's re related to China. And I think here you can really see that there is an impact Whereas it's really difficult to say that, let's say, if Fox News is present now in, right. let's say, Pakistan, that there's an impact, or if someone reads one Trump tweet or two, yeah. that it had an impact on yeah. um, that um, country or individual. So to be included under your typology, under your database that you've collected, it has to have then a meaningful impact in the information control regime of the state that it's being diffused to. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And you gave the example of the trainings, which goes right into the second rebuttal point, uh, which is, I think the report undervalues the agency of countries and people in those countries who import or absorb China and Russian information controls. And I think the key thing here is that this is a two-way relationship and not a one-way street. So let's take that example of media training. You mentioned journalists who participate in these week-long, month-long, sometimes even longer excursions to China, where everything is probably paid for, and they show you all the good sides of China's long 5,000-year history, and nothing ever goes wrong. And even if stuff does go goes wrong, it's staged in a nice way. 
Um, but I think that the assumption is that that makes an impact on the journalists themselves. And I think that question is a little fuzzier than we make it out to be. And oftentimes these journalists have their own agency to make their own critical discussions. So I looked at this Columbia Journalism report where they interviewed four journalists who had participated in China's press outreach programs about the good and bad of their experiences, their observations about Chinese media, and the role journalism can play in helping countries navigate a future with China. And so from some of these accounts, and maybe you would count these under your typology under the training diffusion, um, under these accounts, for example, Bonface Otieno from Nairobi, Kenya says, if the Chinese brought me to Beijing to influence my journalism, they failed. Every Friday in my newsroom, they put a copy of China Daily on the journalist's desks. I don't think I've ever seen a negative story in that crazy paper. I'd bring it home for my friends to wrap meat with. Then I told the guy who brings it, man, never bring me this again. Alpha DeFay Sankpenny from Monrovia, Liberia. I became a journalist because I stand for democracy. I don't call myself a big fanatic of the West, but I believe in freedom. I believe today that what we do in Liberia is a media house. Checking on the government, holding its feet to the fire, is the reason we have been able to solve some of our problems, is the reason we are who we are. The trip was designed to sell China's image, yes, but I'm not going to trade my principles for some Chinese belief about journalism. Yvonne Akonda Sundu from Malawi echoes similar sentiments. So does Leticia Porgorilis from Buenos Aires, Argentina. So how would you respond to this notion that we overestimate the impact of some of these information controls, especially as it relates to journalist trainings? Mm -hmm. Um, Those are all very valid points. Um, As regards to the agency of a country, I would say that it usually depends on the size of the country, what the impact is going to be. If it's a small um, country such as Antigua or Barbuda, it might not have a lot of agency when it deals with China. And when there is only few journalists, if there's only small uh, media schools, let's say, uh, that might have a bigger impact, whereas um, Germany might have more agency in um, dealing uh, with such influence. Um, I think that these um, journalist accounts vary depending on who they talk to. If, let's say, Alpha Dafei Sengpeni speaks to Columbia Journalism Review, he might say he was not influenced. But um, in another interview with the China Daily, he says that China to me is the best place to learn more about new media. And um, he says that um, Chinese wisdom um, is uh, sharing Chinese wisdom His team with his team is an obligation. And he says that more opportunities for young uh, Liberians to study in China uh, would help expand his uh, country's new media. And um, <clears throat> then there's another example of another uh, journalist um, I think that was mentioned is Leticia Pogorilis from uh, Buenos Aires. And after she finished the media training, she exhibited her photographs from her year-long um, journey within China. And uh, she exhibited within the art space of the ICBC um, bank in Buenos Aires. And she says that... Um, uh, she wanted to counter with the photographs the Western idea that in China there uh, are one billion people and that there is no face to it and there is only a number. Um, and here the idea is really to put the face to the story and um, how we can reimagine China. And there's other examples um, um, of um, which I came across in my um, an- analysis is a Pakistani journalist who... Um, after um, he came back to Pakistan, he wrote about the China-Pakistan economic corridor, 
which is a major <coughs> piece in um, also of the BRI, and he writes that uh, he writes against um, that um, other elements have started um, spreading um, propaganda against the project and spreading misinformation. The Western and Indian media has again started an extensive campaign against C CPAC um, projects, and they are reporting um, it as a um, as a cause of economic crisis and debt burden on Pakistan. So I think um, <clears throat> the argument I'm, I'm making here is that they may mention that they are not being influenced, but I think they have been affected by the month-long trainings, um, and an indication of it is that they selectively report about China. I haven't, for instance, found any articles um, of uh, journalists involved in those media fellowships that would criticize China, for instance. And I imagine each year a thou thousands of or a thousand journalists are trained and they go back to their countries and they're not critically reporting on China. So it's not only um, now, it's not only jur um, Chinese journalists telling the, the government's stories but also uh, journalists and media executives from overseas. Um, so I think really the key point here is that it's um, a selective reporting by these um, uh, journalists after right. their return. Um, and often they're um, still writing for Xinhua, they're writing right. for uh, China Daily, and right. uh, yeah, I guess, I guess um, that um, says um, a lot about it. Yeah, I think there's... I think the point here is not to pick apart specific individuals. I think the point mm. here is to say that there's going to be a lot of variation in individuals. Some people might go there and just completely buy in. Some people will feel very, very repulsed. Um, I think study abroad is a different type of story, or exchanges is different because it's not within a mm. structured environment. But a lot of times people go study abroad and actually you know, study abroad programs in China actually come away with a very critical mindset about the country. So I think, yeah, like you're saying, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard and there may be variation on the size of the country, the type of media environment. I think it's a good point to point out because it's definitely an emphasis that China is doing this type of stuff, especially with countries um, in Africa and other, uh, there's also, and also developing countries. Um, I think there's a parallel in some cases to there's a lot of debate over Chinese foreign aid and how that will affect African countries, Southeast Asian countries, whether that means that they will vote with China in the UN or something. And there is an emerging literature in that field, at least, that African countries have more agency than we think, or the countries in relationship with China have agency to pit China and other donors against each other to kind of get better deals for themselves. So I think my point here is let's not lose sight of the agency of um, the receiving countries. Another example is iFlyTech. Um, sorry, another example is the CloudWalk and Zimbabwe deal, which I think you mentioned in the report, where initially everyone is reporting this is the Zimbabwe government selling out African citizens because all the data is going to go back to CloudWalk to help CloudWalk train their facial recognition algorithms to be better at identifying people with darker shades in their faces. And actually, follow-on reporting and journalists that I've talked with who have tried to track down the story of whether this deal was actually completed, where the data is going, they have said that the Zimbabwe government hasn't said that they are going to keep the data within Zimbabwe and the data is not going to go back to 
Cloudwalk, and we don't even know the status of the deal. Uh, so I think those are a couple of examples of where um, I, th- I think there's a tendency in this realm of research, this notion that China and Russia are just exporting their models all over the world and everyone else is just a passive recipient, where there can be some agency on the part of the receiver. Mm, very, very good point. And I, I definitely agree with that. And there must be much more um, <clears throat> emphasis on studying the outcomes and right. the impact of that diffusion, right? There's very little out there. And I, I think I've just um, scratched the surface of it. Great. So let's let's keep going on uh, rebuttal number three. Uh, so I think when you say causes of diffusion, you're looking more at correlation and not causation. So if we were to run a regression on large-scale regression on your table and just have our dependent variable be whether the country accepted a diffusion of information controls or not from China or Russia, you're isolating political and economic interconnectedness as one of the independent variables that we're testing, and then you're also isolating regime type as another independent variable. Um, but there's also a bunch of intervening variables or a bunch of control variables that you have to test for. So is it really the case that it's about interconnectedness through political ties in the Belt and Road, or is the fact that diffusion is happening to surrounding countries just a result of proximity, and they're just closer, so it's just much easier to make connections with those countries, more much easier to like sell to countries that are closer? Um, Uh, is that influenced by the economic capabilities of the receiving country themselves? Uh, they might have to have some level of technological development in order to get these information controls. Um, so what do you think that you are controlling for some of these alternative explanations? Or what do you think is, a, have, did you consider any alternative explanations for why these patterns of diffusion are the way they are? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I have um, thought about um, some different um, factors that would be, for instance, the, um, China and Russia would actually um, force them or like in- incentivize them in, in very over- overt ways to buy their technology or, mm. let's say, of um, democratic countries who would say, you shouldn't buy that, right? right. I haven't really perceived any of those two, so that my, that's kind of my um, alternative variables. Okay. So um, it's not a mutual consent kind of in the export and import but more of a pressure and force so that was the alternative variables i've looked at i think um the context i um wanted to provide in the um, paper is also that a lot of these um, companies especially in china are state-owned enterprises and they have you know communist party committees and Mm. so on and there's it's really difficult to tell political apart from the economic right. factor and from um, independent kind of uh, driving of um, or seeking of profits. Right. And of course, they want to sell everywhere. And I think it's also that the Chinese government's uh, um, wish to sell uh, more. Right? right. So they have like over right. overlapping incentives. Um, there are some examples where there is um, a clear um, um, causation, um, let's say, where um, countries on the Belt and Road Initiative are invited to China right. to security expos, right. and over there they are matched up with um, domestic Chinese security providers. Right. And um, it's interesting that the 
framing of the security expos is the Belt and Road Initiative. Right. Right. So there's a direction given. Um, I mean, at least it's it's being pronounced that um, that the company should um, take that direction, and then companies like Mea Pico, yes. um, <clears throat> trained um, officials in in digital forensics in these um, um, countries along the Belt and Road Initiative. So I think um, cases um, like that really illustrate that there is a causation. In other cases, it might be more difficult to say. Let's say a safe city was exported to um, uh, any uh, a country at in in South America. Right. Then it's, for instance, more difficult to say that's exactly because uh, the state wanted it to go there. And for these, so so that Maya Pico is a really nice example. And in page eleven, you have a really cool graphic where the Chinese translation has the label that says Maya Pico was instructed by the Chinese Ministry of Public Security. Um, is that right? Or where is Oh, the... so it was, um, first it was, um, uh, so the first image is um, from earlier this year. Right. And there the, the image said that uh, Maya Pico was instructed by the Ministry right, of Public right. Security. Right. And later on that reference was um, deleted from the same image. Gotcha. Exactly. So you pulled it at two different times. Yeah. So yeah. So uh, there ca- could have been an, an intention by Mia Pico to want to de-emphasize that um, they were instructed by the Ministry of Public Security to export to countries of the Belt and Road Initiative trade routes. Yeah. So I think the this is getting way too in the weeds, but it could be the case again that you have to disentangle the economic and the political interconnections. So it could be the case that. The Belt and Road countries are chosen because they happen to be more economically interconnected with China. I don't know if the maritime countries are also part of this or not. Um, and then the other point is the causation that you're making only relates to technosphere claims, right? Whether countries get, at least in the China case, whether countries are doing all three things, training, imitation, and getting the technology. And it's not a point about predicting just one of those things. Yeah, I think the the causation becomes more and more clear once you start including all those um, uh, technology imitation and training. Right. right. Then it really kind of becomes clear right. when it's only one factor, let's say only technology right. or only training, then it could be more dispersed. Right. Dispersed, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, let's move on to footnote fever. And I just want to start by saying there is a really incredible amount of work that has uh, gone into this. If you look at footnotes 173 through 366, all of those are things that Valentin has dug up or found or built on the research of others to, to build up a diffusion table of diffusion of information control tech uh, laws and models of information control and training to 110 countries. And... What is an example of something that you are not including in this table? One um, instance would be the um, selling of high vision cameras to a uh, public Japanese university. And over there you could argue that is a large amount of people, probably thousands of people, being monitored every day through technology uh, by high vision. But um, I don't include it because it's uh, presumably not operated by public authorities, such as, for instance, um, 
um, it's um, most probably, most likely that it's being operated by university officials. And um, I think I really try to make the distinction between public and private um, or selling technology to public um, entities or um, infrastructure and um, uh, the um, selling to private entities. Because otherwise, um, Hikvision has sold to over 100 countries. Huawei has sold right. their surveillance um, cameras. And I think you could quite easily cover the world um, and you would just lose, lose sight of all the um, exports that have been occurring. Right. And in the section, we also go through some of the surrounding literature. And I think what you just pointed out is one of the critiques I have for some of the surrounding literature, which is it's not getting to the technical level. So let's consider this Carnegie Endowment Global Expansion of AI Surveillance Report from uh, Steve Feldstein. And what that report is trying to do is it's trying to come up with the AI Global Surveillance Index. Um, so what was your reaction to this report and how does AI play a role in some of these information control diffusion discussions? Yeah, so I had a first read of it <clears throat> immediately as it came out on the same day as my report, actually. Oh, nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think they might have um, sped up the process a little bit. And um, so well, I was a bit concerned um, already um, at the time, and then I let it sit for a little bit, and then um, someone pointed um, out to me the critique of um, IPVM, which is a leading authority on video surveillance uh, globally, and they wrote a quite, um, uh, let's say, um, extensive um, critique of the Carnegie paper, and uh, they said that the paper doesn't do a good job at distinguishing AI from non-AI surveillance, mm. and also um, thereby not identifying a country's key AI companies. And I would add um, several points to IPVM's um, points that they raised, and uh, that really pertains to the taxonomy um, of AI surveillance techniques that um, Steve Feldstein um, tries to establish in that paper. And the um, working paper categorizes AI techniques into smart cities, safe cities, slash safe cities, uh, facial recognition systems, and smart policing. However, um, uh, through my research, um, I really saw that facial recognition systems are an inherent part of safe cities hmm. and even smart policing. Right. If we uh, look back at the um, ELTE Yes, um, product the Huawei. Huawei. Product, yeah, yeah, very much. Often, it's um, integrating um, facial uh, recognition cameras, but also providing the command um, um, system to operate them. So it's really kind of to um, make uh, policing smarter. And I think it really doesn't make sense to um, categorize um, AI surveillance in those terms, right? Um, and in those categories, because they are just so inextric inextricably linked with each other. And then the second report I want to talk to you about is this RAND report on hostile social manipulation uh, by a group of folks, uh, Michael Mazzara, Abigail Casey, Alyssa Demis, Scott Harold, Luke Matthews, Nathan Beauchamp, Mustafaga, and James Sladen um, at RAND. And in this report, they also talk, they specifically focus on hostile uh, social manipulation, manipulation of social media. Um, what were your thoughts on this report? I um, find... Uh, RAND reports, first of all, impressive because they're so extensive, always over 300 pages. Yeah. <laughs> and then I have difficulties of going through all of it. and it makes it hard to digest. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, <clears throat> I like the distinction um, that they make of um, research in that area that's trying to um, see what the outputs are of uh, such um, hostile media um, campaigns and outcomes. 
So by outputs, they say that a lot of people have studied the numbers of posts, um, tweets, clicks, views, and likes, let's say, of Russian and Chinese um, uh, foreign, um, foreign engagements, but they haven't really looked at the outcomes and the actual effects um, and in changes in attitudes and behaviors mm. that have occurred in targeted um, countries, right? right. So w what does it bring us if we have numbers, if we don't really know what they mean right. um, and what effect they have abroad? Um, I also like that they give a historical context to Russian and Chinese propaganda because I think it just like illuminates um, today's practices. What I wish, though, is that surveillance played a larger role mm. in the taxonomy. The taxonomy, so in that uh, report, which was over 300 pages long, only three pages are dedicated to surveillance. Right. And uh, why is it so crucial that surveillance is included? Um, because you need to know you need to monitor as a nation state, you need to monitor what is occurring in different, um, uh, on different platforms, and then you're able to conduct your information operations. Right? And so it's really important to discuss that first aspect of knowing what's occurring. That's that great. allows you to conduct your actions. That's great. That's great. So now uh, one of my favorite parts is, of this section is what is your favorite footnote? Because could be it's a lot. There's a lot of footnotes in this report. The could be a really cool reference to someone else's work you want to emphasize, or the footnote that you really wanted in the text but you had to uh, include um, as a footnote instead for space or feedback reasons. Yeah, just shortly, I want to say that I'm really grateful to all the journalistic work that's been done done out there, mm. whether. Uh, all over the world, really, there's lots of um, investigative reporting that uh, without it, I couldn't have written uh, what I've um, written. And uh, But I would like to highlight footnote 59. <clears throat> You'll see that there are a lot of uh, tiny URLs which shorten the URLs, and it was a result um, of um, editors highlighting to me that um, those censored websites that are uh, where the URL was present right. shouldn't be highlighted in the report. Because um, those blog pages included, for instance, um, marihuana.com, and they thought it's not a good uh, thing to put in a paper. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's kind of a just a side story uh, to a footnote. And I, I almost felt a bit, you know, uh, uh, directed what should be in there and what shouldn't. I, that would have been fun if you could include, like, marijuanaforall.com well if you click on the link you'll see that it's been um, uh, blocked on the uni website okay so that that's an incentive for everyone out there to actually go through and click on every single one of these 366 <laughs> footnotes and i think I, I wonder i'm just curious because i've had things where i did translations of like chinese language websites but then i go back and the original chinese is deleted or gone have you gotten into like the habit of using perma cc or kind of making sure that all your links that you're looking at in case they get taken down later are preserved mm -hmm. yeah i've learned it the hard way i guess <laughs> uh some links disappeared some especially what's difficult is sometimes powerpoint presentations which were accessible through a website and then mm. even in web archive you couldn't find them anymore i've run into that before because yeah. they're usually sometimes just like a pdf that exactly gets on the web and then they get deleted yeah that was very annoying but i was able to find on that pdf again and what i've done now is either i download those powerpoints or i would have a snapshot of the website mm. on zotero because i usually reference my uh the websites i found or the occurrences of um diffusion 
So that's a way for me to keep a snapshot. Even if it's gone on the internet, I'll still have it on my computer. Great. That's a great lead into trust the process section. So to collect all of these tables, you collected all the sources in Zotero? Or? Yes. Okay, great. Um, that's actually a, that's a selfish question on my end because I'm thinking that I'm trying to figure out a better way to manage my references. So, um, <laughs> I was also really impressed by the in-depth analysis of both China and Russia, where oftentimes we look at one country in a vacuum uh, without any comparative rigor. What was different about your research process for China versus the one for Russia? Or was there not much of a difference at all? Yeah, interestingly, there are very different research communities, some which focus on Russia and the post-Soviet space, and um, people that focus on China. Um, and um, so th that was already interesting. So the, pe the research communities are quite different. However, what I <clears throat> um, quickly came to realize is that there's m less data on Russia, since less people or a few people only focus on Russian domestic, but also international surveillance practices. Um, so it was more difficult for me to cross-reference um, and make the proofs of diffusion stronger. Right? I would have an instance of diffusion, but I wouldn't have so many other sources to um, back up that claim. Um, otherwise, the research process was quite similar. You know, I found a, a censorship of surveillance company, I would look at the marketing material, and I would go from there and find other connections to other companies, other entities, and so on. Um, with Chinese companies, the interesting thing was that, um, you know, there were just many more different products out there so I really had to go into the weeds of yeah. looking what is ELTE I had to look what the intelligence um, databases they provide um, for governments right. um, really mean what, what what they entail um, and when it's surveillance um, you know to control um, large amounts um, or large amounts of people um, so it just required um, more reading on the technical specificities great great um, and I'm just curious about um you know, part of this section is to think of researchers as not robots that plug in objective inputs and then plug out perfectly formulated objective outputs. And just a little bit about your personal background. Uh, you're from Austria. Is that partly connected with what motivates you to study this stuff? I was reading some articles about how uh, Russia's possible influence in Astra in Austria has been a big story recently where German security services have warned officials against sharing intelligence with the Austrian government uh, because of the presence of a far-right party in its governing coalition. Um, yeah, anything you want to speak to in relation to that? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, I'm <clears throat> from Austria. I'm from the Slovenian ethnic group, which is a minority in the southern part of Austria. And uh, what's happened historically is that we've always been at the mercy of the of the state and of the government and our rights were often disregarded for instance during world war ii we couldn't speak um, slovenian or my ancestors couldn't mm. speak slovenian it was it was prohibited even after the war the situation didn't get much better so i guess what brought me to this field is partly also the wish to just empower citizens against or um, to keep better check on the governments that might use modern surveillance technologies mm. or lesser known surveillance technologies to impact citizens. Uh, as regards to the situation in Austria, I do read um, Austrian newspaper every day. Mm. Um, I haven't really written extensively about it, right. um, but I can say that we do ha have had traditionally a strong involvement from Russia 
and Vienna has been a uh, playground for Russian spies for centuries. Hmm. And the last government coalition included that right-wing party, the FPÖ, as I mentioned, and they have been known to have closer links to Russia than other parties. Um, but gladly, there was a large scandal precisely because of that Russian involvement. So hmm. they were promising, the, the vice chancellor, he, he promised um, political influence in exchange for, uh, for funding to mm-hmm. a, a supposedly uh, Russian oligarch. That sounds really so, familiar. So, so someone, someone sent, set him up. And um, now the government uh, has been ousted, and hopefully they have been also punished in re- recent elections, and mm. uh, hopefully for the foreseeable future we won't have any more involvement from Russia. And um, on the, the Chinese involvement in Austria, there has been more um, economic engagement with um, China. Um, we do have so the Austrian police uses, um, for instance, DJI drones for right. aerial surveillance. So there is some selling off technology. Um, it's a really important report uh, to read, so I'd highly encourage, if you're interested in some stuff that we talked about, to really get into the weeds of it and uh, read Valentin's work either at the CTGA working paper or the Open Technology Fund uh, paper that also came out along with it. So thanks, Valentin, for coming on. Thanks, Jeff, for inviting me. Appreciate it. Okay. Let's... I still don't have an outro. Sorry. <laughs>